Is my screen cool too? Like what yeah, you're nah, seeing yeah, you're in good, the front? You're good. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Right. What's the word, everybody? It's your boy Trady Grayhand. Welcome to another episode of Hunger for More Podcast. I have a special, special guest here with me today, Julian Mitchell, writer, entrepreneur. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I feel good. How you been holding up this yeah. pandemic? Uh, it's actually been good. I mean, the beginning of it uh, was was a little rough in terms of just navigating everything. And I had family that were uh, directly impacted by COVID. I lost the aunt um, who actually Sorry was taking that, care of her husband. Yeah, nah, thank you. So, you know, she was taking care of her husband. And this was when the testing wasn't as available. Mm-hmm. Um, and people couldn't really find out. There just wasn't enough information about what was going on at the time. It was very early. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got really sick. And, you know, these are people that were big in, in helping me go to college and know what I going to do mm-hmm. uh, with my life. And he got really sick and she was taking care of him. And then by the time he got his test results back, she had got sick and passed away maybe like a week after that. So that was, that was rough and having other people in the hospital, things like that. So the early parts of COVID mm-hmm. was rough and then obviously being on lockdown and things like that yeah. in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned into something very positive, uh, very healthy, uh, focusing on just being healthy and in getting back to walking, eating better, writing a lot, focusing a lot. Uh, and it just became something that's been really, really positive. Mm-hmm. You know, so it started a little rough and it's been really good uh, since then. It's been almost six months, bro. It's half a year. So, <laughs> you know, half of 2020, we've been locked up. So yeah, eventually, you know, we got to snap back into it some way, somehow, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of your writing, like, I appreciate your two new mm-hmm. articles you dropped about, like, the Black Lives Matter movement yep. and race. There's a particular thing that you wrote that I wanted to start off with. Yeah. Where, where you said the case can be made that desiring racial equality is not about being seen as white people, desiring an equal comparison or searching for acceptance into a historically yep. private club, et cetera, et cetera. But you basically went down to say just like how, you know, black black lives like we basically we can control this thing without having to look like them or try to be like them we can have our own right. thing can you speak on yeah. what you were trying to say in that paragraph that was my favorite a powerful paragraph that you had in the yeah yeah the absolutely article. i think I'll, I'll say i'll start by saying this everybody references martin luther king's i have a dream speech right when they talk about equality they always reference that throughout our history Mm -hmm. and i always felt like when people reference equality and they reference the i have a dream speech it's often taken out of context it's usually understood through the context of us as black people especially coming from an oppressed place Mm -hmm. saying our desire is to be seen like white people Right. Like our desire is to be seen, respected compared to, you know, the way that white people are like we desire to be like culturally, socially, everything, which in a subconscious way only enforces the idea of white superiority, because ultimately they're saying we're better than you and we're elevated higher than you. And you're saying that you want to become like us. And that's not the basis of what we as black people ask for or truly what the basis of what Martin Luther King was saying is about. 
What it's really about is saying we want to be able to be freely black people, like completely us in who we are, the diversity and the complexity and the scope of our diaspora, like what we represent, Mm -hmm. the language we have. We want to be absolutely free to be us. And in a way, that's a private identity. If you go to what James Baldwin says, right? Like when he talks about if black English isn't language, then tell me what is. He talks about how we as black people should take pride in keeping some sort of private identity, something that's true to us that we keep that doesn't have to be exploited or given to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Because it's very much us. So when we talk about equality and what I'm saying in that graph is the goal is not to be like white people. Mm-hmm. And it's always made to seem that way. It's like nationalism, like white nationalism, black nationalism, like, okay, goal is to go to the same colleges and work the same jobs and wear the same <laughs> clothes and make the same money. It's like, that's not what we're asking for. We're just saying that in our exclusivity, like in who we are as black people, We just want to be able to be free in that and have the same rights and protections and liberties as everybody is supposed to have as people in this country. Um, But that doesn't mean we're all trying to assimilate or be like each other. And I think a big, uh, I don't want to say mistake, but I think a big uh, misstep in our consciousness as we talk about progress is, is thinking that way. We think like, yo, we need to be people who our barometer of success and value and worthiness is compared to how we see um, white people define six for us all of these years. You know what I'm saying? Like we have to redefine that for ourselves. And so that's what that graph was, was really speaking about. Is like, yo, if you really pulled the layers back, if you pulled that back, you would see that's not what we're asking for. Like what we're asking for is saying we are black people and we want to be able to be that without any questions or any persecution. That's it. That's what that was saying. Like in your opinion, that right? makes in your opinion, like what do you think is the root of our culture not being able to prosper as a collective economically? Because I know I have an opinion, yep. but I want to hear your opinion first before I say mine. Yeah, so why we, just to be clear, why we as a black collective can't unite economically or come like, together yeah, what, what and you be a power? Yeah, like what you think is like the, the root of our issue that we have as a collective? Because, mm-hmm. you know, individually, we're still prospering on the entertainment level, sports level, and also yep. on the business level now also. But as a collective, it still looks like yes. we, can't, we can't rise up economically. That, and, and I talk about that in the story, right? I talk about that. I say, we don't see it as the collective. That's our number one problem. It's one thing to say, uh, we all need to work together, right? That's a common narrative. We all say, yo, we need to be more united. We need to together. Like our businesses need to be together. It's not even that as the point, in my opinion. It starts with saying, when we look at, I'm sorry, I hope that wasn't too loud. I got the window open. When we look at, um, when we look at the value of black life, this is something I talk about in the the story too. Talk about the value of black life. When a black child is born, 
you're ultimately born and seen as a representation of the value of the black collective. So if you looked at like the stock market, right? And you think about uh, when a company is in the market and there are shares available of that company, right? The value or the cost of those shares represents what a fraction or a representation of what that company is ultimately worth. Mm -hmm. So when we look at our persistence individually right like when we see ourselves as i'm going to be successful i'm going to be the owner i'm going to be wealthy i'm going to do all of these things that still is only incrementally adding to the value of the collective if you do it yourself if you look at it like yeah i'm the one who is successful and i'm doing these things that's great for your lineage but it's not doing a lot to elevate the value of us collectively. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, I don't think we see our individual pursuits through the lens of mm -hmm. how is this affecting us collectively? Mm -hmm. it's, it's still very much like you, every person for themselves, you gotta be successful, you gotta do this. Secondly, I think it's in the same vein, not understanding the power of real assets and ownership. Think about what impacts the value of a collective, right? If you're using the same thing, what do you own? What are your assets? Mm -hmm. uh, what, is the, what, is, what are the elements that impact how you're perceived, like the value of that? We don't really take into account those things. Like we don't think about, okay, um, it's great to make a lot of money, but if you don't actually own anything, then you really don't have any appreciating value over time that's truly going to last throughout generations. So you can make a lot of bread now and you could be doing all this cool stuff now, but you literally aren't creating the pathway to have real wealth or real assets or any of those things that could create more jobs and more opportunity um, for people in that respect. I think it's the same thing Malcolm was trying to say back then, but wasn't trying to say that that he did say about he did, I think yeah. the, root, the root of our problem is dependency. You know yep. what I mean? Where we can't see, it's like almost like segregation was almost a bad thing now when you look at it. I mean, integration was a bad thing now. Now when you look at it yep. all these years later because we don't have the same type of independence that we once had yeah. before, you know? Where it's like, you yeah. can throw a dollar sign in our face and all our morals and principles go out the window for a dollar sign. And I yeah. think that, I honestly feel that's yeah. the main issue that we're having now, of just like collectively, as long as we're all still being, not all of us, but as long as like a, a good majority of, of us are being Dependence still will never be able to like mm -hmm. collectively because even even now like not my friend group but just like people that I know it's hard for us to as a group yep. build something up because everybody has their own I guess you could say their own ideals on how they look at life you get what I'm saying and business yeah of course yeah I mean but we look at people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, all these people, it's like nobody told them they couldn't make Facebook. Nobody told them mm -hmm. they couldn't build Tesla. Nobody told them they couldn't do these things. Even when you look at Kanye, 
however you feel about him. The <laughs> fact that he is he was able to the impact it had on him is separate. It's, it's all of that is like a personal thing. If you just look pure economically and what he was able to do and build and create, mm-hmm. and even the people who have come up under him, all the designers, like you wouldn't have a fear of God. You wouldn't have so many brands without people who came up under a Kanye, yeah, a Kanye sure. West. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. if you looked at just that, you would say, why would we be still so dependent on, to your point, so dependent on every industry to be our lifeblood, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not too far-fetched. To, there was a Negro League at one point. Like, people are able to create these things that we own is the point. Like, it's not far. We have to stop thinking it's too far-fetched to say we could have our own NBA, or we can build our own Google. Exactly. Or we can make Vince McMahon made the XFL. He <laughs> don't even play football. Exactly. And they got and they got TV deals mm-hmm. and the whole. You get what I'm saying? So it's like it's, it's almost like we truly can do it. It's branding. Like when they see the NBA, they like, why would I try to make another thing that's is not going to compare to the NBA? They're already too big. We can't do it. But, but that's the thing. Cool. But look at what you're saying. Think about what you're saying to that point is like if the NBA is 80 percent black exactly. and you're the best black players in the world and you get the best people, you go get a you go get a collective of people with money to fund this. Like LeBron just raised one hundred million dollars for his media company. Right. Mm-hmm. If you went and raised a half a billion dollars, which they could do and said, we want to create this and way you built the school. And I'm not putting this on LeBron because he does a lot. I'm just saying like <laughs> him as an example. But you know what I'm saying? Like if they went and did that, mm-hmm. then you could you could go get the other players who would want to be a part of what actually is theirs and they own that represents them in the culture. You would get more participation and support than you probably would imagine. And I think it's that idea of if you are that kind of player, right, you only got a certain window to get money. Like you only got a certain window to be that hot. So if somebody has that window, they're not going to go try to create their own. They're going to go try to get all the money and the shine that they can get while they can get it. Mm-hmm. That's the same reason people still sign deals and don't go independent because they're like, <laughs> if all this all this money is only going to be here for this window of time but that's like the jay-z point where he says like are you trying to play for right now are you trying to play for forever forever Mm -hmm. you know and then bringing it back to allow say to that because it's a great great uh point and segue is jay-z they asked him to the point of uh collective wealth right economically they asked him they said um you know why wouldn't you go back and buy marcy projects right there's like why wouldn't you go back and buy up your old projects and change that community and empower the kids economically etc and his response was i mean i could go buy all the buildings but if their mentality is still the same then it's not gonna matter Mm -hmm. but what i would argue to that is i get the logic behind that but if you don't change the environment, you don't change the mentality, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if you don't change the environment of Marcy Projects, if you don't put access and opportunity in those places, mm-hmm. then how are people's mentalities going to change? Like, they're still poor. Mm-hmm. Like, they're still hurting. They're still doing all of that. So, it's like something has to come first. So, the same way that we look at, oh, this is why we shouldn't do this. Like, yo, you got to get out your hood. Like, once you get money, 
you got to get as far away from this as possible. Or once you do this, it's like, yeah, you can look, you can look at it that way, but then your neighborhood in your area is always going to be exactly what it was until white people come and gentrify it. And until something happens, and then everybody's it's always, it's, it's always going to be that way until somebody decides that it's worth the investment in the future of that place of the collective. Like it's better for us all to have something and able to have access and opportunity than just me having it and, and, uh, being selfish with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to, cause we, we short on time. I want to get into a yeah. little bit about your backstory, but we can, maybe another time we can talk more about like your, really your upbringing, but I wanted to ask yep. you like, I read about your story and I know that you come from, you know, you come from the bottom, you come from the bottom. Oh yeah. <laughs> was there any like, <laughs> real talk. were there any Literally. like positive yeah. role models that, that you looked up to from the block or that, you know, like who's helped you along your way? Cause you know, when you're on the, when you're on the block, most of the time the role models that you look up to, they're encouraging you to self-destruct. You know what I'm saying? So, was there any role uh, yeah. models around you at that time? Because I, I heard about your story and how tough it was for you, you know, not, not having your parents. Yeah, it was crazy. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where at a when you're younger, mm-hmm. you don't realize how not normal those circumstances are. Mm-hmm. So you so you don't realize that um, it's it's not normal for people to be dying. It's not normal for people to be in jail. It's not normal for people to not have food in their refrigerator. It's not normal for neighborhoods to look like this, for there to be bugs everywhere, for you not to have a place to sleep. Like all these things that you become uh, normalized to, mm-hmm. you find you find ways to exist within it. You know what I'm saying? So there's one part of it where it becomes so normalized that you just uh, navigate it in a way where it, it's just, it's what you know. Like it's who you know, it's what you know, that's all that it is. So mm-hmm. like when I used to kick it with people in the neighborhood or, or be around places or um, be around a lot of different things, it was more so um, that's just the environment that we were in and what was going on. And I always had friends who, because they saw like, oh, he's like smart or he's the one that could get out of this situation. They used to be like, yo, if someone's about to go down, I had certain friends I'd be like, you need to go home or you need to get out of here or like you need to be um, making sure you go going to school or you staying out the street and you're not doing this. So I had like different people in my friend circles that was really like, as we say, in the trenches with shit, like. Mm-hmm. And they would always be like, yo, stay out the way. Like, you know what I'm saying? You play football, you go to school, like you do this, like stay out the way because that's what I grew up around. Now, people specifically, my brother was a big motivating force. Like my brother used to always stay on top of me. He was a lot like a father figure, like, yo, you're not a street dude. Like, I don't care what you see, what's going on. Like, you need to be this way. Like, and he would keep me on that path. Football coaches, like my Pop Warner football coach, uh, Coach Herb, rest in peace, Coach Vern, they were big on me. Like, they pushed me really hard, but they kept me, like, on the straight and narrow. As I got older, uh, it was people like uh, Will Campbell when I got to college, right. who became, like, not a to, mentor to me. Not to, who saw not to cut you off, right? But, but yeah. 
It's What's so up? crazy. That's how much like sports saves young black kids' lives a lot. You know what I'm saying? Because the same oh, thing yeah. for me with basketball, like that's not my career now, but just having something where distracted me and made me want to do nothing else was perfect for me to swiggle my way through coming up in the projects and you know seeing mm-hmm. my friends get 15 plus years and things of that nature i was able to navigate that because all i wanted to do was play ball at least until yeah. it got me to college and then i realized all right fuck school i'm leaving this shit but i wasn't in jail i wasn't confined yes you get what i'm saying and just like i hear a lot of people sometimes where They'll say, I don't want my kids playing sports. And I'm just like, whoa, like, no yeah, way. You're they don't crazy. get it. They don't get it, bro. I'm like, they yo, do I don't care. Let, let your child, let your child, girl, little boy, be in activities that takes them away from nonsense. Because, man, I probably would never even finish high school if I didn't have basketball. Man, and that was like, it was bigger than sports, bro. That was community, it's mm-hmm. family, that was culture. Like, for, for people like us who didn't have family, your football coaches were your family. Like, mm-hmm. the players, they was like your brothers, your cousins. You grew up with them. You went and had football practice or basketball practice at the neighborhood gym. Like, like in Vegas, it was like Doolittle was mm-hmm. in the middle of the west side in the neighborhood, like late night hoops. Everybody went there and played, but that's also where all the teams press. And, and like, that's where all the... That, that was like in the neighborhood where all the drug dealers was at, all the gang members was at, everybody was there. But at the same time, all the kids that played Pop Warner and played basketball and high school basketball, mm-hmm. that's where everybody practiced that. That's where everybody was. So you had the drill teams and the, the parents used to come out and cook and the drum lines and the cheerleaders and, you know, the lights used to come up. And the- so it was like it was like a culture and a community to that that we never felt at our actual homes. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So when we came was, into that, it was just it was a lot different. The coolest thing was about like playing basketball or any sport is that we got to travel. We got to like yep. go other places and then you learn discipline and teamwork and all the essential things that I feel that every young kid should learn in life, you know, that you can take with you to do other things. So I think yes. sports is just, I just wanted to say that because your story kind of similar, just like how a sport can just like save you, save you to buy, like to bypass time from doing other things. You know oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the thing about that was anybody who, when you look at these stories of, of people who came from those environments and played sports and reached a high level, right? They always talk about how the sport was their refuge, like their sanctuary. And that's very true because when those spaces, nothing in your world matters, right? Like nothing else matters. And you find a way to channel that through whatever sport you're playing. And people see that. And I think that's the same thing people see when they try to steer you away from it. You know what I'm saying? They look at you and they say, yo, this energy can go one of two ways. <laughs> it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it can either sure. go really left or it can go right. Mm-hmm. And so when people will recognize that you and they see that you have some hope, because a lot of people I came up around didn't have that, you know, they had potential, but they didn't have the hope. You could see it in them. Absolutely. I was like, yo, they already... Their energy is already over here. Mm-hmm. So if they could if they could see that in you, they would try to cultivate that through sport. They'd be like, yo, 
we're going to push you harder, try to get you to work harder. We're going to get you to try to understand these principles, the values of sports, you know what I'm saying? Like discipline and respect and teamwork, these things that carry over into your life. So when you talk about kids playing sports, sometimes sport is the only way you can harness that energy exactly. from going very left. You know what I'm saying? A lot of cats I played sports with growing up who their energy was different. You know, they they are dead. They've, you know, been in jail or they got, you know, their lives is completely different. So, and then when I see them at times now, they be so proud because they know we came from the same place. Like they literally know like, yeah, we came from the same place. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's just, it's so critical. Sport is critical to life. You know what I'm saying? When you come from those neighborhoods, for sure. All right. I want to talk about... Cause mm-hmm. you and to salute to you for coming out of that, too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. For being able to, to, to so, and elevate when, yourself. When you're in it, you don't even realize what's happening. But, like, when you, you stop don't. and you you check out the landscape around you, you're just like, whoa, I'm glad. I'm not playing basketball anymore, but I'm glad I did. Because if I didn't, I'll be... Mm-hmm. I would have been outside with my can friends I, can, and shoot outside. Can I actually everything. ask you a question too? Can mm-hmm. I ask you a quick question? Mm-hmm. Where you sit now, right? Coming from where you come from. At what point did you realize that how you grew up wasn't normal? I'll be honest. I realized that when I started having girlfriends. For mm-hmm. some, for me, it's been real interesting. Like I learned most of everything from women. From all the girls that mm-hmm. I done been with, same. When I see, right. when I see like my certain toxic behavior I done had, where I learned like, oh shit, I learned this from either seeing my father do it or seeing my friends do it, so it was normal. Like even trying to, you know, when you're when you're young and insecure, it's just like you don't want your girlfriend to do this, you don't want to do that, or sometimes you're too mm-hmm. aggressive, like even like the whole Vado thing that's viral right now, or just like him grabbing Tahiri, I'm like, wow, at 15, I probably would've did that at 15, you know what I'm saying? Just because right. I'm just filled with ego, I'm just like, man, and this is from things that I've seen, so it was normal to me. You get what I'm saying? Right. Until I started, yep. If it wasn't for dealing with women, I would've never knew like a lot of things that I had to basically reprogram myself to not have mm-hmm. an ego to be more calm and and kinder you know what i'm saying of us everything doesn't have to be aggressive all the time even me speaking to you right now would have never happened five years ago because i was stuck in a way of just like fuck everybody or i don't want to talk to anybody i'm from new york so it's just like yeah everything's just like Yo, fuck everybody you know what i'm saying like i don't want to talk to anybody i'm better than everybody but it's just like now I see things of like, yo, building relationships. This is I'm doing this not even for money. It's just about trying to get as much knowledge as I can from people that I truly respect. And there's nothing wrong uh-huh. with me asking. Because I would never asked before a couple of years ago because uh-huh. of the programming. You get what I'm saying? So Yeah, that's powerful for sure. Yeah, man. I, it changes your life. That, yeah. that shit changes your whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to. Because I feel like part of part of it too is we don't know what it's like not to be fighting something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like as black people, we don't know what it's. We don't actually give ourselves mission to feel free. Mm-hmm. And that and that's a part of it. Too. And that and I'm not saying that's our fault again because we are put in scenarios normally where 
we have to, it's like they say, survival, right? Mm-hmm. Survival is a war tactic. That's saying like, yo, we're at war. So we have to survive the war. Like we can't die. But then at the same time, that builds up a certain instinct that everything is a fight. So like that same ego you have, you need that because you can't allow somebody to take advantage of you or play you or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it's like uh, it's so you, funny you, you don't you ego. don't know how to coexist in the world as a human being. You're always a soldier. Like you're mm-hmm. always at war. I think that's a big part of why collectively we also aren't able to elevate is because we always are fighting something. You know what I'm saying? Always. Man. Yeah. Ego is something that I've been practicing for like the last year and a half and just like stoicism. You know, I read a lot of books by <laughs> Ryan Holiday. I read all his books, actually. And just yep. ego is the enemy, the obstacle is the way. And just realizing that like, whoa, a lot of things of, a lot of things that's in my way is mainly because of me. Like a lot of things be self-inflicted <laughs> obstacles that I put upon myself. Like, right. you know, so I'm glad you said the ego thing, but just to speed up, you graduate yep. college and then you started a digital agency, right? Or was, nah, so, how did that so story go? I, yeah, yeah, so I, I was in college. It's like 2009 and I went to Occidental. I was in L.A. and uh, I had a mentor who I mentioned, uh, Will Campbell at the time. Mm. So Will was an Oxy alumni. He's somebody who saw me hustling all through college. What was your hustle like, in college? In music, working at the radio. Oh my God, I was I did I did everything. I was I was the event producer. I used to throw the events on campus. I used to throw the concerts at other campuses. I used to I ran the radio station. I was an editor at the paper. What's your purpose I, uh, when you're doing all of this? Like, what you trying to get out of this, of, like, doing all these yeah, things? At the, well, at the time, at the time, it's a gr- great uh, question that you ask, because literally I reference this all the time. Mm-hmm. When I was doing it, I was just, as I call it, powered by passion, right? I was just more so, these are all things that I like mm-hmm. and really things that I love that I don't see. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, I would see the radio station. I'm like, we don't have any music that I fuck with. So, like, <laughs> I need to make that happen. Yo, uh-huh. we, don't, we got all this money and we ain't throwing concerts. That Like, I know motherfuckers like the same music. I like, I don't see it. So, I want to mm-hmm. go do it. Yo, people ain't talking about this. I want to write that story. Yo, we ain't having these conversations. I want to do this. So, I was fueled by that, right? Like, creating and expressing myself because I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And then, but I didn't know what it meant. Like I was doing it all, but I didn't know what it meant. And and the funny thing is, uh, Will is actually somebody who was like, yo, you know, all the stuff that you're doing is really like a career. So like, these are things that people do for a living. Like they, they do these things. I was like, okay. And then I started to realize the power and what I was feeling, which was the purpose that I still carry now. Mm-hmm. Taking my unique perspective and my multitude of talents to translate that perspective and doing it to create spaces that don't exist or have conversations that don't exist or to add a value that that doesn't exist. Is that why like you you started like get paid to be yourself and complex, I heard you're responsible for complex hustle. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, so the first thing, I'll I'll give you the quick print. So the first, so out of college, 
I was like, yo, I want to do the media thing. I hadn't done it, really. I used to see people in corner offices in New York. You know, that was the vibe. Like, if he was a magazine editor, that's where he was at. Mm-hmm. So I, I booked a plane ticket on a whim, moved to New York. I took over this uh, blog at the time. It's called Multitude New York. They, Multitude was like a kind of buzzing little streetwear skater brand in the city, mm-hmm. like in the East Village and shit. You know what I'm saying? Like down there in Brooklyn. And so uh, they needed a market intern. I said, yo. I'll be your marketing intern for free if you let me run this online magazine. So I took the, took that over, got a homie to redesign it, and I went around myself and did all the features and like built up this blog. And when I built up the blog, I did a lot of people's first features. Like I did the first feature on like Warby Parker and like oh, all wow. these different people. And I was writing this stuff in 2009, like early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2009. And um I did all of that and was like, okay, I can do this. So then I moved back to LA and the fast track is, moved back to LA, Will was like, yo, I have this idea for an agency, for for a company. And that idea became Quantacy. He used to have a company, Arc Media Group, that built websites. So him and I linked up, like wrote the mission statement, the value system, like everything for this company and built it out. So I started in advertising. Mm-hmm. It was a small group of us built up Quantacy and then uh, went from Quantacy to join and Puff to build and launch Revolt. Wait, was wait, one of the first people there. Wait, before you even go yeah. to the Revolt thing, with, yeah. with Quantacy, it was a, you guys' mission statement was that you guys were an intersection of media, marketing, tech, and culture, right? So yes. from the inside, yep. like how was, how was the operation of the of company that. every day? Huh? <laughs> So I was a part of writing that. Yeah, <laughs> quantum metrics. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the the so at the time, remember this is really early, like mm-hmm. what before advertising took the big culture shift, this is like the blog era. So being in advertising wasn't sexy. Like being in the marketing industry was not as fly and cultural as it is today. Mm-hmm. So at that particular time, our biggest job and the way that it carried out every day was trying to teach brands about culture and the shift that was happening while actively getting them to participate in it. So, so much of our job and my specifics was actually literally creating presentations and strategies and decks that were like, yo, here's what's happening. Here's the future of what's happening. Here's how you play in that. And oh, we'll build what you need to go do that. And that turned into... How come you knew what was next? Like, that, as I'm reading up about you, I'm like, yo, how did he know, like, what was next? Oh, kind of which yeah. was content, you know? Like, yeah. how did you, what did you see at that time that showed you, like, oh, shit, like, mm-hmm. this, the old way is not cool anymore. It's going towards content. Well, what I saw was social media would not be social without conversations. Mm -hmm. Nothing is social without conversations. So then you look at how do conversations happen, right? Like conversations feel, there's two fundamental things that always remain. Number one is that subcultures fuel pop culture. So a subculture is something that's happening below the surface that eventually will get adopted by people who are lit and then it becomes something that's mainstream. That's always the formula forever. Mm-hmm. Then you look at it and you say, conversations fuel culture. 
content fuels conversations. So then you say if content fuels conversations, conversations fuel culture, then how are people having conversations and what conversations matter to people, Mm -hmm. right? Like you look at that, okay, boom. At the time, social media was just, and digital in general was just kind of becoming the thing. Mm -hmm. Blogging happened, this is what I noticed. Blogging happened because media got to a place where it wasn't allowing people who had true perspectives on culture or on lifestyle or on music mm-hmm. to be able to express that without getting into the club, right? Like they had to get into uh, the industry. Mm-hmm. But, but they had a perspective that was more valuable than what a lot of people were offering or they were giving something that was very unique to what they had. So they went and democratized it and built it on their own. They, they went and did that. They took that audience. They built the audience for themselves. That became a wave. That became subculture. That became pop culture. You remember the blogging era, everybody had a blog. Like, if you was popping, you had a blog. <laughs> you know? So, like, I started seeing stuff like that, like the cycle, like how these things work, like mm-hmm. what the shifts are that happen. And, um, and when I would see it, because I was a part of it, like I was always a part of the culture while, like, being a student of it. Mm-hmm. I would always be like, oh, okay. It, it became instinctual in some ways. I'd be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I know this is going to happen because I know how this works. Like, I, I know hip-hop, so I know that shift. I know media. I know this. So mm-hmm. you can kind of see the formula. You develop, like, a formula. It becomes instinctual of how these things usually play out. Mm-hmm. And then I would just go for it. I'd be like, okay, if I see this and I recognize this, instead of just saying it like a theory, I'd rather go create it like go do it and show you like all right this is happening so i'm gonna go Mm -hmm. you know do this and then that would happen and so it went from starting out like while i was at quantity it was uh you know doing everything from accelerate by google like creating that platform to done yeah to done um by wells fargo Mm -hmm. and when i say accelerate by google like that actual strategy and platform for that product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote that. So oh, then shit. the, the like working fire. on the done, uh, done the campaign for Wells Fargo and the whole idea around mobile banking mm-hmm. and millennial banking for Wells Fargo to best yourself for Honda and getting Honda to do a media brand like access.honda.com and mm-hmm. that being their most successful campaign since like Civic Nation and doing like when Dwayne Wade came to this and doing his first way of Wade platform, which was editorial and Magic Johnson and like all these people. And I was doing all of that with this and teaching these brands about like, yo, and this is the intersection of media, time, right? culture, etc. In that time, what you say? I said in that time, right? Like, how is life for you at that moment as you're working on all these things? Like, like personal life wise, like, is there like pressure or it's a you're in a zone that like yeah. you're ignoring everything going on around you just to get everything done? I'll give, I'll give you the snapshot. Number one, it was it was intense because when I started there, number one, I never went to advertising. I always wanted to be in the music business in terms of before that. Um, so I never really saw a career in marketing and advertising. So I had no foresight of like, oh, this is a career path that mm-hmm. I want to go down. So there, there was like that shock. Two, I was broke as shit. 
So at that particular time, when I was jumping into that, I wasn't really making any money. So there was that part of it. It wasn't until down the road that I really started get, like making money. But at the time, I wasn't. Three, I was about to be a father. So oh, I, was, I was about to have a son. Yeah. So then there was that, that point of time. And then the fourth yes. part of it is we were building a company. So mm-hmm. then I'm super young. I'm an executive, um, I'm an executive, a director in this company that's new, that's building in an industry that I'm not familiar with. And I don't, didn't really see a future in, I'm about to be a father. I'm not really getting no bread. I just moved from New York. Like all this stuff is happening. So personally at the time, it was a lot. It was like, okay, what's going on now? At the same time, I looked at it like, if I can master the game, like if I can really learn the mechanics of how the game works, mm-hmm. then I'll be a star in any industry. Cause I started to see that my professor in, in college told me, he was like, yo, you know, I know you probably want to do all these other things cause I was telling him about uh, politics, etc." But he was like, if you can master the ability to translate your ideas and communicate, there is no industry you are not going to conquer. He told me that in college. Mm-hmm. And that always with me because I was like, oh, the intangible things that we talk about, that goes with you. Like as long as you evolve and develop, that goes with you. But if you can learn the mechanics of how the games work, like how the industries work and the things that are transferable, then you can move across spaces and boss up. And so I became committed to mastering the game, like being a student of the game. And so I remember being in meetings at the time when I first started sweating, like sweating bullets, because I'm in these big meetings with these ad executives and like agency people. And I'm the young, youngest dude. And I got ideas and stuff. And I'm like rambling and like, you know what I'm saying? I'm nervous. But I kept saying in my mind, I was like, yo, you got to take the shot. Like, like you if you want to do it, you got to take the shot. I kept just pushing myself, like pushing myself, pushing myself. And so that was more of my mentality was like, you're uncomfortable, but on the other side of all of this, mm-hmm. it's gonna be a whole new level of your life yourself, of, of what, did, what you're doing, what that'll did, propel you. And that's, that's how it happened. What did and you it learn changed ab- after that. What did you learn about yourself during that transition from, you know, not having anything and having all this pressure to like, finally yeah. breaking through because when was the breakthrough for you personally was it when you went to revolt or sometime after that i think i think revolt was a professional breakthrough mm-hmm. i think for a lot of reasons i feel like the personal breakthrough mm-hmm. was the, per- the personal breakthrough happened while we Excuse me, sorry. While I was working in advertising at Quantum, like in that period of time, and it came a little bit before that. It came at a point where I, I was at a rock bottom. Like I from New York, uh, I was working a job. The job fell through. Mm-hmm. I was at this kind of breaking point, and I had this moment of like really digging inside of myself, like looking in the mirror and saying, "Yo, if." this is a defining moment for you type thing. You know what I'm saying? Like if you choose not to quit, you know what I'm saying? Like if you choose not to quit no matter how hard it gets, then there's nothing 
that you've been promised that you won't get. Like there's nothing you see that you won't be able to accomplish. And I made a commitment Mm -hmm. in that moment to say, I am going as hard as I need to go and I don't care how hard it gets. And so that was a personal breakthrough. Can you talk that about happened, huh? Can you talk about how important that is to like make a commitment that no matter what, I'm going to get through this and get to the other side? Because a lot of people, yep. I feel, is never really committed. You get what I'm saying? So can you speak yeah. about that? Like just making that, deci- just making a decision mentally that mm-hmm. things are going to get harder, no matter how hard it gets. I'm not stopping. I have a, I have a phrase that I've developed for myself that I share a lot and it's action kills anxiety I feel like I wrote a tweet today about something like fear fear is giving yourself too much time to think Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying a lot of times and I feel like part of commitment is trust and like it's rooted in that and to commit to yourself means you are trusting yourself Mm -hmm. to trust yourself means you are you are going to commit to yourself good bad or indifferent like you're allowing yourself to make a decision and you're giving yourself permission to fail but you're also giving yourself permission not to fail Mm -hmm. but whatever the case may be you're riding for yourself you know what I'm saying? Like I'm riding for me. And I feel like that changes everything because you bit, the more you do it, it's like a muscle. Mm-hmm. Like committing to yourself is a muscle that you have to work and work and work. Like in moments where you be feeling like, I don't know, mm-hmm. you literally gotta be like, fuck it. <laughs> like <laughs> go. And and the more that you do that, and the more that you build up that muscle of like Yo, I'm really riding for myself. Like, I'm down to ride for myself. They start to build up a uh, a level of certainty in yourself. Not being right or wrong, but you develop this level of certainty where you're like, okay, I may not always be right, or I may not always be making the smartest decision to other people's standards, but what I am going to do is make the decision that is absolutely true to me. Like, it is absolutely (laughs) true to me. And it is absolutely what I feel, and I will stand on it. Like, I will stand on it, I will ride on it. And I feel like that's paramount to anything you do, because if you don't have that commitment, like, if you aren't that decisive, Mm -hmm. then you will never truly be able to honor yourself in moments that you're the only person. Oh, hold on. Hold on one second. I'm getting out of FaceTime. You're... You will not be able to honor yourself in the moments where you need yourself the most, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll have moments where you may be it may be just you and you're riding for yourself. And if you don't have to say I'm completely confident in my decision, then you won't be able to represent yourself. You'll get to you know what I'm saying? Like you won't be able to do that um, and you won't really know what you want. So I think that commitment and saying, yo, no matter what, I'm not going to quit. That's the marathon. That's mm-hmm. literally the marathon. Action, action beats anxiety. It's funny that action you, kills anxiety. Facts. I love that because today I literally tweeted because I have a thing where, as I'm doing these interviews, like before the interview, I get nervous. Like days before, mm-hmm. I get nervous. But I said something today on my tweets. I was just like, preparation eliminates fear for me. 
Because when mm-hmm. I'm prepared, even if I wrote a thousand questions right here, I won't get through all of them. But just knowing mm-hmm. that I was prepared, I come to this yep. with confidence. You get what I'm saying? I'm not like, what mm-hmm. do I say? How did this go? I know it's going to go all over the place, but I have a plan. And as long as I have my plan, no matter how things get crazy, I'm sticking to the plan that I can pivot through the through the plan. You get what I'm saying? So I love mm-hmm. that you said that action beats anxiety. Yeah. That's real shit. It's a fact. It's a fact. You know I me? Mean? So, yeah, so that, that to me has been one of the most powerful things, like in terms of building confidence, building uh, security in yourself, building trust yourself. It comes over taking the shots. That's really mm-hmm. all it is. Like, you're not going to have confidence confidence in your jump shot if you're not shooting yeah, every day in the gym. Like, reps. That's for sure. Yeah, so you got to do it. And, and you got to be, you can't be afraid to airball, to brick, to shoot it off the backboard every now and then, like to get booed off the court, whatever it is. But eventually, you will get to a place where you find, like, what's for you. And, you be, and you're completely okay with that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And speaking of preparation, yeah. so you end up, you end up leaving quantity. That's what's called quantity. Quantity. Yep. Quantity. And then you end up with revolt. And yeah, I, I, I listen to on, your hold story. On, hold on one second. My, uh, <laughs> so good. I have to, I have to tell you. Hold on. We're good. Sorry. I was getting a call. Give me the phone. That's all good. Um, So, yeah, I know that you you end up at Revolt because I watched your interview with John Henry, which I like. I like John Henry a lot also. And you're responsible for Revolt's launch. But what was more impressive to me that I caught, I was like, what the fuck? When you was like how you had the first 500 tweets ready to go and i'm just like whoa hold oh, on yeah. so there's a whole there's a whole preparation <laughs> to this launch out can you can you explain what you and the revolt team did during that time to prepare for the revolt launch like that's details oh i want the details because like for other media companies that want to start i just want to know because maybe one day i want to start one you know what i'm saying and i wouldn't know yeah, like what's gotta... the full launch, like preparation I mean, to this launch it took it took shout out to neil dominique shout out to ramon dink shout out to besadonna shout out to chris roy video chris there was a small team of us like a like a small team of us that were really like in it to tuma Basa, like shout out to tuma um that like before there were offices and trash cans and phones and all of that like it really like us building this out you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so what what went into it to try to keep it as short as possible with the Mm -hmm. details is like um puff gets the deal him and andy shown they get revolt Mm -hmm. they have it as a network i think the announcement had just came out not too long before so uh i get an email from the head of digital at the time he was like yo um you know we're launching this network uh would love to meet with you we know what you do in this space and then that that ended up being like yo uh mr combs really wants to meet with you and he wants to meet with you like tomorrow morning and then like okay so then it went from the meeting with him and i remember i'll I'll tell you this i remember uh, i had a meeting with andy shown 
the day before that. And um, I remember the conversation that I had and they kept telling me, they was like, this is the first network that's launching in the social media era, right? Like that kept being the thing they would say. It's the first network that's launching in the social media era. And the reason why they wanted to talk to me is because I was one of the people who understood very well, like that space, like the Mm -hmm. intersection of social, editorial, media, culture, like that was my world. Like I've been doing that with brands and doing all things. So there was like, yo, you know, if he wants somebody young, he doesn't want an old executive. He doesn't want a TV, but like he wants somebody who's in the culture. He gets his whatever. Mm -hmm. So when I had the meeting, and they said, yo, he wants to meet with you in the morning. No lie. I took the cues from that, like what they kept saying he was looking for. And I went to a cafe in downtown L.A. and I stayed up all night. The meeting was at probably like eight in the morning, literally eight, nine in the morning. Sit up all night and I made this presentation that was all about answering the questions that they said he needed answers to. Wow. And I was like, so it was like this, the best practices of social media to, you know, content driving uh, culture and, and mm-hmm. driving conversations and conversations. All the stuff we're talking about, subcultures, fueling pop culture. And, and I even was like, the voice of revolt should be this and it should be positioned like this and it should be this, this, and this. And I went to FedEx, I had laminated and bound and like put on hard stock gloss and a whole nine. And when I went there and met with him, it was just him and I. And when I was there and we were talking and we sit down, he was telling me, he's like, you know, so this is like my baby. This is this means a lot to me. Like this network is, is huge to me. And while we were talking, he it eventually came down and like, so he asked me the questions that uh, I thought he was going to ask. And then he followed that up by saying, like, what do you see? Like, what do you see, Lopez? What do you want? And literally, I was like, well, <laughs> boom. Go. And I had two copies. And I had one for him, and I had one for me, and I literally walked him through the whole thing. And he was like, yo. And then I was showing, we were going through videos and interviews, like James Ball and Stokely Carmichael and, like, all this stuff. And we were there the whole time. And when I left, he was like, yo, this like is exactly like I needed. This is exactly what I was looking for. Like, you know what I'm saying? And I'm and I, and I'm young and I'm black and I'm like of the culture and all of that. So I was I was getting ready to go to South by Southwest and I got the job. When I left his house in the car, I got the job the job that day. But then the first to fast forward to what we did is after I got the job, I come into the office. It's like the first part of coming in. And I was the director of social media. That was my I was director of social media and then became the head of uh, editorial. So I was running editorial and social media mm-hmm. when we launched it. Yo, he called, he called me and my team to fly to New York mm-hmm. that same week. Was like, yo, I need y'all here. Quick story, get on, I go home, pack a bag, we get car, go to the plane, fly to New York, get out the plane to New York, got a car, dropped my stuff at the hotel, went straight across the street to 1510 to the old office, go up to the sixth floor where his office was, come out. I'm talking about we fresh off the plane, fresh from LA, come out of here on his floor and he has the conference room full of people, like 
full of people. Come in the room, everybody's clapping. He's doing like an introduction. It's like, hey, whatever. And it was like a war room for revolt. And I'm talking about it was all kinds of people in there. And he was like, all right, this is Julian. He's our new director of social media. You know, he was like, yo, he got this plan about how this should look and how this should feel. Like he got this. And they had my deck, the presentation I showed him, they had it on the screens. It was on the screens. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like printed out. And that started, the point of it is that started, yo, I was in New York for weeks, like weeks. I didn't go home and I got a newborn baby. Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I was in New York and uh, it was getting the designs, like getting that shout out to Jelani. I sat with Jelani and talked to him about all the designs, like the first mock-ups of the website, the first ads, like what they look like. We did the revolt value pit, which is like yeah, all listen, the values of the network. When I, when I so, listened to you on John Henry's podcast and you were saying these things, I'm just like, oh shit, this is- It was like, a real deal. This, he was really in it and that had me intrigued. I'm like, yo, I need to hear this whole story. Completely in it. Complete, yo, man, listen. The, the literally the mission statement, the positioning statement, the manifesto, the value system, the first 500 tweets, all that stuff is very real. Like I still have the documents, the, the, um, you know, the strategy, the, the state of music strategy that we ended up launching the channel with the mock-ups of the Tumblr pages, the, like everything you could think of. And I remember presenting Puff all of it, like literally having to walk him through all every single thing and getting his approval on every single thing and getting him. We had meetings at his apartment, in his car, in elevators, in this at like Damn. everywhere, bro. We, we like I remember one time I was presenting something to him as he was coming down the elevator, walking across the street. Like literally, we're coming out <laughs> the elevator, walking across the street, having a meeting. Like I'm taking him through stuff. While he's getting ready to go to dinner, it was like all the time. Was there staying up all night in the background? Was back there a certain room. time he wanted was to? Thing. Was there a certain time he wanted to launch? That's why things were getting hectic. Like, was there a certain deadline? Yeah. You know what's so crazy is, so we did all of that preparation, right? Like it was a ton of preparation, and Revolt was supposed to launch literally the day of the Boston bombing. You remember the Boston Marathon? Mm-hmm. We were set to launch that day. Oh, wow. And and we were all set to go for that. And then when the Boston bombing happened, we were all in the office when it happened. Mm-hmm. And the day that that happened, everything changed. Then it was like, okay, you know, we have to rethink this. We have to, you know, take a different approach. So then we ended up launching uh, after that. But initially we had a date in mind and we were working aggressively what towards that, that date. Like? And, um, yeah, and I remember like, you know, walking to the train and the sun's coming up and you know what I'm saying, the whole nine. What was that you know day like like launch day? What was like what was launch day like? The first day of launch. First you know, it's funny, first first day of launch, I still got videos. I'm I'm gonna forward you the Instagram video from the day we launched. Yeah, please do, please uh, do. Definitely. I, I was see up. It. I was I, I did not sleep for two days, no lie, two yeah. days. Did not sleep. And the day that we launched and rolled everything out, by the end of the day, I fell asleep for like the whole day. I like slept a whole day. 
Um, yeah, like launch day was crazy. Like, like we like- launched because the day we launched, like uh, Puff was on, uh, Mr. Combs was on, all the radio stations. Like he did Breakfast yeah, Club. Like, he did like bad boy all over. You know, again. six in the morning. He did he all was that. Everywhere. There was like all the articles coming out. Yeah, it was, you know what I'm saying. Like all that stuff. So, and I was up through all of that. Like up in the office by myself because I was I, like we had to run that. So what were we talking about on the Twitter? We had to launch the Twitter, the it's like all of that. I stuff. can't get over the 500. And tweets. I was over that. Yeah, I still can't get over that you wrote 500 tweets before this before launch day. That is crazy. It was a lot. That I mean, crazy. yeah, it was, it was hundreds of tweets. Like it was these yeah. these are factual statements, and like, they had to be in schedules, like in mm-hmm. calendar schedules. Wow. They had to get approved. There was a thing where when we first started, he had to approve everything. Mm-hmm. Like the, the night before, we would be on big chains with all the content, all the stuff that was rolling out, and we would have to see it a bit. So it was, like, it was, is uh, Diddy management style still aggressive? Or has, like like how he was when he was building Bad Boy? Or is it different? Was it different at that time? I mean, I wasn't around when he was building Bad Boy. I've heard stories and like mm-hmm. things like that. So I can't really speak to what he was like back then Mm -hmm. but what i would say is when we were building revolt it was for real like i'll tell you when when the deal happened Mm -hmm. who all was in that room with me then so rest in peace to andre Carell. he was there i know neil was there for sure uh he went to cons france and we were launching the channel channel like the the network Mm -hmm. Because uh, we did social first the first year that we launched the channel. Oh, yeah. I forgot. And while that was happening, people didn't even know that. They thought Revolt was like straight digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the team did a really, really great job of launching the network. Like when we launched, it was really, really on point. Mm-hmm. So then the, the network came and it was launching. And, uh, you know, he was saying, like, we had a meeting and he was like, you know, this is history because. You know, no black man of the culture like this owns a network. Like, nobody owns a network in this time, in this moment. And he was talking about the magnitude of that. And everybody didn't understand what he was saying and, like, the magnitude of it. So he says, he's like, yo, I need the plan for how we're rolling this out. And... Uh, the plan that came back wasn't big enough. Like, he was really about, like, yo, this needs to feel like the magnitude of the moment. Mm-hmm. And so, I kid you not, he was like, all right. He was like, I guarantee you by the time I come back from cons, this is going to be considered the biggest TV launch in history. He literally said that. He's like, this is going to be the biggest TV launch in history. And he goes to cons, and, he, and we were in the conference room. He's like, yo... Keep this screen on, keep this TV on, and everybody staying in here. It was like a war room. And he goes to France, and we stayed up the entire time he was in this. We stayed in that room, and Doug, we were on a live stream, and he would go do a talk, and then he would do an interview, and then he would check in, like, yo, where are we at? Like, what are our tweets looking like? What's our plan? What, what's our editorial story? Who's talking about this? Did he go do something? Be up all night, then he'd check it, and it was round the clock, round the clock, round the clock. And he he was hitting everybody, like, you could think of and doing interviews with everybody. 
And I kid you not, Bloomberg put out a story that said it was the biggest launch in one of the biggest launches in TV history. I'll never forget. <laughs> and he, he did what he said he was going to do. And then he put the picture of him on the table, like pouring champagne mm-hmm. in France. <laughs> and uh, that's just how his energy was at that time to give you an idea. Like he was relentless. It was like, yo. If I got to put this on my back, if I got to make every phone call, whatever I got to do, I'm doing it. Like, this is big and, and like, and it's mine and, like, mm-hmm. I'm doing it. Yeah. And and if yes. you if you were around at that time, you, you carried that energy. Like, you picked up on that, mm-hmm. for sure. Diddy's really a savage. When it comes to... Mm-hmm. It's intense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a few ways to communicate a message and you chose writing mainly as yours. What made you yeah. decide that writing was the tool that you would use to get your message across? I don't really think it was the decision as much as it was an outlet. Uh-huh. You know, I felt like, uh, like even when I was in high school, I used to go to this, uh, youth forum, the mm-hmm. Las Vegas youth forum. And, um, they would have the sessions and they, the person who would kind of lead the sessions, they would ask you like, do you want to write to recap the session? They would pick you to write it for the review journal, the city's paper. Mm-hmm. And I would get picked to write it because I'd be in the sessions talking about the different things that we should do. So writing was always like an outlet and a tool for me. And I think as I got, uh, as I got older, and I started writing across mediums, like writing for advertising, brand writing, editorial, et cetera. I started realizing that I really, it was really a tool. Like I could really translate whatever, like what my, what my advisors, I could do whatever. And it wasn't until from a journalism standpoint, cause I was always writing. Journalism in terms of doing that came while I was at Revolt, because when I was a social media director, again, conversation. So every day I would be like, yo, what happened and what are we talking about? And that's part of what made us so big on the timeline is like we would change our Twitter name, change our skins, like change our profile photo. We would like lead whatever conversation was happening around music and culture. So that was an everyday thing. So when we would do that, I would be like, yo, we should be talking about this and people used to be like yeah we should but nobody could write it or, or people wouldn't do it mm-hmm. so i started doing it myself so like when big moments would happen i would write the story myself and be like all right well let's publish this and then that story would like really go crazy mm-hmm. or i'd go do the interviews like i'd go interview somebody like interview the dream or interview whoever and then uh Nobody would write the story that went with the video. Like we'd put the video out and it'd go crazy. And so I was like, all right, I'll write the stories that go with my interviews, that go with the videos. Or we'd go out and cover all the festivals and stuff like that. I'm glad you and just said that. And I was like, we that. need to cover these. I'm glad you just you know said what I'm that. So I started doing it. When you say right. nobody wasn't writing the stories to the video interview, what made you, what's the decision behind that? Because even I've been thinking about doing that at times, like, should I write stories to like every interview that I do just to like build that muscle? Yeah. Like what, you should. What's, what's, you should. The, what's the reason for that? Or why? I think, I mean, I think, I think number one, 
everything needs context. We always talk about content is king. I think context is king. Mm-hmm. I think you need you need to give context to what people are seeing, hearing, reading, or watching. Mm-hmm. So I think it was always about context, right? Like people need to understand why what he's saying is important or what she's saying is important. People need to know what it means. People need to know, instead of just putting it out there and leaving it to people's interpretation, I think you kind of want to steer people, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Number two, I think you want to give your perspective. So if you do an interview where you shoot a video, you also want to give your take on what that was or what that experience was. That was two, like sharing perspective. And then I think the third one is simply content, like media, like multimedia. People experience content in different ways. Some people like the written word. Some people like to watch. Some people like social media. So I always looked at it like whatever way somebody wants to experience this, they should be able to experience it at the highest quality. That makes you know what I'm saying? So, so that was always my approach to that. Now, where does Forbes come into play in this whole, in your career? Because I feel like that's where I knew mm-hmm. you before at first. I just loved your articles as a reader because I read a lot. So mm-hmm. I knew you from there. The first time I ever seen you was kind of late. I seen you like around... 2017 when you did the Get Paid to Be Yourself with Dame, which is one of my favorite oh, yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, I'm just like, who's Julian Mitchell? And then I just started looking at your work and I'm just like, oh, he talking about the stuff I'm into. And that's how I became a fan, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because it, just, it wow. comes a time where it's just like, you're talking about things deeper than just music. You're talking about the business side of music. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And I'm a big fan of that as just a business nerd. So it's just like, you was perfect for at that time and you look like me so it was perfect you know what i'm saying so yeah how did you end up getting how did you end up becoming a columnist for forbes you know it's funny it was zach greenberg so when you said oh, yeah. when you said that yeah so so bringing it full circle when i was at revolt in the beginning zach wrote a story he came to la and interviewed me for a story that was like meet uh diddy's real revolt recruits right mm-hmm. And it was a story of people who were launching a network and he interviewed some of us. And he came to LA to do that. And that's where we met. And then like he saw what we were doing and what I was doing there. And like, I was young. Like at the time I was even younger than I am now. Obviously like that was seven years ago, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of like, similarly kind of like, oh, like, you know, he started to understand my background more. He saw the relationship that I had like with Puff at the time and what was going on. He's kind of like, oh, okay. Like, you know, and over time, I started writing. So when I was writing uh, about music and culture and all that, while I was at Revolt, I personally, coming from advertising, going into television and media, I saw a lot of things that I didn't feel like people noticed. And I saw a lot of things that I felt like people like us needed perspective on whether it was how to move whether it was how to know our value in these spaces whether it was knowing what's happening in the business and how to understand it you know what i'm saying all the stuff i was seeing so i just started publishing it on my linkedin now this is before linkedin was even like a like a publishing platform Mm -hmm. i started writing it on my linkedin and sharing it like sharing it out and i remember i wrote this story grind versus hustle a guide to telling the difference like about the difference between people who grind and people who hustle and it was like something people were like yo this is like hard this is so on point 
And Zach was one of those people who hit me up like, yo, um, this is an amazing article, like an amazing story. Um, and he was like, how would you feel writing more stories like this? He's like, we don't have this perspective at all on our platform. Like it, it doesn't exist. We don't have people talking about the business. And at the time, they really didn't have a, a showbiz vertical, like music, media, entertainment. It really was non-existent outside of Cash King's list and who's the richest this and who's that. They definitely didn't have any culture writers. There was nobody writing about culture. There was nobody writing about creators. There was nobody writing about none of that. And uh, I saw it as, oh, this is a huge opportunity, again, to create a space on a platform like this that literally did not exist before. You know what I'm saying? Like, we didn't have a voice on that platform before I was writing there. And I'm not saying that to, to be like, oh, it just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. Who would you have went to Forbes and read before I got there for that? You know, I wasn't even looking at, for, like, you know Six. about Forbes, but you're not even, I'm not even looking at Forbes to read anything over there. Exactly. So, so when he said that, I was writing a story for Revolt on Kendrick on To Pimp a Butterfly. And so I was writing this story and I was like, oh, let me talk about how this story is changing advertising. So literally the first story I published was a story about how Kendrick Lamar's The Pimp a Butterfly changed, like proved that a, pro- uh, I never, a challenging narrative I never is got profitable. to read that one. I'm challenging not narrative that is more profitable. And, uh, and I sent it to him. Mm-hmm. So I write it and I sent it to him and I had an outline of what I wanted the column to be. I called it the code and I was like translating, you know, uh, the mechanics of music, media, entertainment, something like that. And I and I sent it to him and I had the stories down and he like, OK, you know, like he's not playing type thing. Like He's ready. He wrote this. This is like dope. And, he, and they published it. That was my first story. And then. It was on from there. And then I started, I did two years under uh, music, media, entertainment. And then uh, I received the opportunity to go to entrepreneurs. And then there really was nobody like me writing under entrepreneurs. So one thing to do music, <laughs> media, entertainment, that can be considered like typical when somebody sees me like, yeah, of course he covers music and he mm-hmm. comes from music. But when I started writing about the business business, like for real, for real, that just like opened it wide open. He was like, wow, I was writing about everything. Bitcoin, digital health, the future of everything. When and um, yeah, and so that's just kind of how that happened. And it lasted four years, exactly. Yep. Oh, so you're not there anymore? No. No. It was like 20, I, February 2019. Yeah, I had it written down. Last like, February. Because I seen like, I think like your last article was like, I think it came out like, January 2019 or something of that nature. I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, he have a real head in a while. Yeah, I left, I left February 2019 was four years. Okay. Yeah. I have Sorry, a, 2015. Uh, I have a few more questions because I'm really, what intrigues me yeah, is Yeah, I got to jump off in like five minutes. All right, like five minutes? minutes? All right, let's, sure. all right, let me get one more question that I really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, You talk about vertical. I respect it. You talk about vertical integration a lot, a lot, and Mm -hmm. that's literally my favorite like topic to talk about in business. And you see what happened with Nick Cannon, which I think is 
the consequences of not being vertically integrated, you know? So can you talk about, if you have an opinion about what happened in the canon, can you talk mm-hmm. about, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think what Nick Cannon has done, you can feel however you want about him. You can say, oh, he's corny or mm-hmm. he's not this or he's not that. But what Nick Cannon is, is a successful entrepreneur and a young black businessman. And right. he's done his thing and he's done it longer than a lot of people who've been able to do it mm-hmm. um, at a high level. So first of all, I respect Nick Cannon. And I think that, um, you know, he's done a lot to get to where he is and he's built his career and his longevity is impressive. So first, in terms of seeing him, that's the context. Like, you know, do I think everything he's done is dope? Do I think everything he's done is my to whatever? No, but that doesn't knock the respect that I have for him as a, as a businessman, entertainer, et cetera. With that being said, I feel like Nick Cannon came into the game at a time where because Nick Cannon became the youngest chairman of Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, he came in at a time where certain doors were never open and certain pathways weren't common and he was knocking doors down. Like, I don't think Nick Cannon gets enough credit for the spaces he has created and the doors that he's opened, right? Mm-hmm. So in one respect, I can see why he went and did the things that he did because that still was a huge accomplishment. That was like knocking the door down. You know what I'm saying? Like he wouldn't have been able to have a while and out or create a Halo Awards or do all these things without the alliances that he built through partnering with these companies and being talent. And I think he leveraged his talent to create pathways as an entrepreneur. The same way I have with writing and other things. You you, you can use that as a pathway that personal to brand get into other spaces. That personal brand yeah, so is yeah, so I think he did. He's done that successfully. So when it comes to him being vertically integrated, I feel like by the time he really got to a place where that made a lot of sense, he was already super immersed mm-hmm. in being the talent and being the one who, and I say this lightly, but the way you said dependency, right? Like he became too dependent on too many things already. Mm-hmm. So like his 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 enterprise was attached to MTV to like attached to Nickelodeon, attached to all these places. So he would have to give all of that up or completely do a boss move and restructure everything mm-hmm. to be able to vertically integrate himself because yeah, it was too attached. Because honestly, for me, as an insight that I see is just that I think that should be the mindset of all content creators mm-hmm. now is being vertically integrated because we can't keep going into their platforms and they have the control to silence us whenever they want. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. not here to say mm-hmm. Nick Cannon was wrong or right. I'm not here to, but what I'm saying is I don't like that if somebody doesn't agree with you, they can snatch, they can snatch your platform from you. You know what I'm saying? But that, but that, but the same token I would say though is like. At a certain point, you realize that that's always the case. Like, if you don't own it, it does not like it does not matter. That can happen to you at any juncture, and it don't matter how successful you are. It don't matter how how much you brought to said platform or what you've done. Like at the end of the day, every business relationship in that respect is an exchange value, mm-hmm. and that can be cut. So even with Nick Cannon, is like. He 
knew that that was possible. Mm-hmm. And that and that's why you always need to be building your own while you're doing these other things. Mm-hmm. So that even when something like that happens, it doesn't set you back or it doesn't um, stop what you're ultimately trying to build. It's changing the dynamic of your partnerships, like of your relationships to where regardless of what they do, it's stopping what you're out there trying to create. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like, yes, every creator now especially should be thinking being vertically integrated. And for those who don't understand that, it's owning the entire chain of commerce from creation to distribution. So like... I'm the I'm the ideator, I'm the strategist, I'm the creator, I'm the distributor, you know what I'm saying, etc. Just like Jay-Z. Um, yeah, just like just like Jay did, just like Nip did, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Long live Nipsey Hustle, just like he did. Um, and it's possible. This again, this goes back to what we first talked about when we mm-hmm. said, like, yo, people starting their own leagues, they're starting their own businesses. It's like we can definitely do it, but you have to get out of you have to see the value in the long term and think about what's really important to you. Mm-hmm. Like what is really important to you? And for some people, it's not being the owner. Like it's not being vertically. That, that's just not what they care about. They care about getting as much bread as they can and like nothing wrong with that. But for people who are really thinking about the collective again, mm-hmm. like if you're thinking about what am I doing, to that's going to help all of us. Mm-hmm. For the, like to advance our agenda for the next however year that's after I'm gone, mm-hmm. then that's something that you know everybody I feel like should be thinking about, and it's and and it should be in the business model you think to develop. It mm-hmm. should be like okay, uh, the greatest example is how in hip hop they monetize their lifestyle. That's the greatest example. You say yo, if it's if it's alcohol that I'm drinking, it's mine. If it's clothes, it's mine. If it's the club, it's my club. It's the, the so it's like if you inventory of that, what are the things that you can create an ecosystem around that you own and operate and try to, you know, build it from there? Well, we can end on that. I truly right. do appreciate you for doing my show. I know Absolutely, I, man. All of. I, pre- I truly appreciate it. Where can people find you? Yeah, um, you can hit me on Instagram, Twitter, at all things Mitch. Um, you can also go to IQ dash labs that's your new that's your new company you're running now right Um, i know i know we showed on time but like we can maybe another time in the future we can do this again so we can talk more about like your backstory oh my god your new company that you got going on you get what i'm saying so i should do it and it's vertically integrated it's vertically (laughs) integrated yeah i respect that for sure thank you so much Um, i appreciate it man take care all right man all right brother Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and also subscribe to my YouTube channel at Traded Great so you can get the video podcasts and other new content that I have coming up. Also follow me on Instagram at Traded Great underscore and on Twitter at I am Traded Great so you guys are updated on when new content is dropping. I appreciate you guys and I hope you guys have a blessed weekend.